good to see you. I invite you now, if you would, to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Your order of service and the slide before you will read as we're beginning in verse number 13, and that is where the preaching will begin. But for the sake of context, we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse number 9 of Colossians chapter 1. I told you last week that uh, these first two weeks I'd like to talk to you about some dangers that I believe to be real and present dangers for us in the days ahead. Last week we talked about just losing focus, uh, losing vision, uh, becoming an institution rather than an effective and efficient mission sending outpost for the advancement of the gospel across the street and around the world. That's a real and present danger. There's a second danger that I want to suggest to you this morning is just as real and just as present for us. Um, and and it's, it's, the, it's the danger of our making certain assumptions about the gospel. I mean the danger of assuming that the world around us is aware of the gospel. In fact, I don't think it's too far to say that, th that there is the threat of something called universalism that exists around us today. The idea in the deep south anyway th that everyone just dies and goes to heaven. That that's, that's just our human experience, that we just live and then we die and then we pass away. Now, you may think that to be the kind of thing that's isolated to the Northeast or maybe even the Northwest, more secular areas of the world or areas where theological liberalism ruled the day. But I have found in my experience in ministry that that is a very real and present danger in our own ministry context, a creeping and cancerous expectation that because we're good old boys and good old girls, that when we die, we can expect to enter into the presence of God. Brandy and I have been married for 15 years. There are two things about which we have serious disagreements, the thermostat and the remote control. There are a few things that we can agree about uh, watching when it comes to television, but one of the things that we're able to sort of settle on, the compromise, are these real crime television shows we watch those shows from time to time, and, and here's, here's, here's what I've observed in watching them. If you have family gathered around the latest drive-by shooting or whatever homicide has happened, and they're all standing there in the yard, it's a gangster, drug dealer, some organized crime member, and the family huddles around the chalk impression of the place where the body last lay, and they all say, well, bless God, he's in a better place. And I always think, well, no, he ain't. Now, that's a kind of a cold, harsh reality, but that is nonetheless the reality. And we don't always make it any better in the church. We speak in platitudes and empty principles when it comes to the time of someone's death. We're not always honest. I'm not suggesting to you that you need to boldly declare the eternal fate of every person that passes away. But there are times when we can simply be quiet, refrain from offering the empty platitudes when they're not appropriate to the circumstance. Now what Paul makes clear in Colossians chapter 1 is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that one can be saved from their sin. He makes it clear here who we are apart from Christ and who we are by faith now in Christ. Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Colossians 1, beginning in verse number 9. Here the Bible says, For this reason also, 
Since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In verses 9 through 12, Paul says, Colossian church, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Now, there's a, there's a big shift taking place here. Paul is moving from his hellos into the theological content of the letter. But he lets them know from the outset that, that he is praying for them, that progress in addressing the theological issues that plague the Colossian church will be addressed. Specifically, Paul prays that they would be fruitful in their ministries, that they would grow in their understanding of the gospel, that they would be strengthened for the gospel, that they would be thankful for the gospel. But his entire prayer is rooted in the promise of the gospel outlined for us in verses 13 through 23. Let's begin there. Here the Bible says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. What Paul describes of Christ there is Jesus, our deliverer. He changes our citizenship. And the imagery of the Exodus is behind what Paul says here in verse 13. The Israelites were strangers, strangers in bondage in a foreign land. They lived within the domain of darkness under the oppressive hand of their slave masters in Egypt. And yet God picked them up and he plucked them out and he delivered them through the waters of the Red Sea and he placed his people in the promised land. Jesus has performed for us 
through his death and burial and resurrection, a new exodus, whereby he has picked us up out of the land of oppression under the oppressive hand of our slave masters and has made us free from the penalty of sin, putting our feet on gospel ground, setting our destiny for the promised land. He has delivered us and transferred our citizenship into an everlasting kingdom, a land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 14 says, in him we have redemption. In other words, Jesus is our redeemer. Again, the idea of of slavery or oppression is behind the language that Paul uses. If you're you're familiar with the idea of redemption in the Bible, it it is the notion of one going down and paying a pardon's price for someone enslaved to a master. Someone who was especially benevolent or who had a fondness for the enslaved might go and pay the price. Perhaps more commonly was the idea of someone who was involved in military warfare being captured by an opposing army. They would become a prisoner of war and and, and those who were over them, their, their generals, their leaders, or even their nation might come and pay the redemption price that they would be released from their captivity. Jesus has redeemed us at the high cost of his own blood. It is not that we are let off the hook of God's wrath arbitrarily. It is not that God in heaven decided within himself that he would simply choose to overlook our sin. The forgiveness of our sin came at an incredible price. The freedom that we enjoy was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. In him and him alone can we have redemption. There is more in verse 14. Not only do we have redemption in him, but it's in him that we have, listen, we have the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is the forgiver of sins. To the best of my knowledge, you won't find another world religious system that offers this provision. In in other words, there, there, there doesn't even seem to exist counterfeit models whereby the deity to be worshiped offers to provide you with the forgiveness of your sin. Certainly, in reality, There is no other legitimate source for the forgiveness of our sins apart from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now you think about that for a moment. If that isn't precious to you this morning, if that doesn't move your heart this morning, it's not because you're holier than the rest of us. It's because you've eyes but cannot see the depth of your own depravity. Can you remember a time in your life when you wished When you wished, oh, you wished that there were a way somehow to turn back the hands of time. Adulthood takes that kind of sensitivity away from us. I can remember the first time I felt that want. I was about six years old. My daddy worked a night shift. If your parents worked a night shift, there's a cardinal sin during the daylight hours. You don't wake daddy. And I thought on this morning, I'm going to be a, a good son and I'm going to fix my own breakfast. So I went into the kitchen area, and I took out that plastic Tupperware bowl, and I began to break eggs into that bowl, and I did what any 
reasonable six-year-old would do. I took that plastic Tupperware bowl, I put it on the eye of the stove, and I turned it on. <laughs> and I watched it melt through that electric stove grate, and I thought as that smell began to fill the house, Lord, if there were some way that I could turn back the hands of time, I'd do it. You get a little older, and the seriousness of our sin increases. There are moments and times when we wish that there were somehow, some way to turn back the hands of time to undo what we had done. You ever been there? Jesus doesn't offer to turn back the hands of time, but he does promise by his blood to wipe clean the slate. Isn't it precious to know that in Christ all things are made new? In Christ we have the forgiveness of our sin. Look at what verse 15 says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the bright radiance of God's glory. Now, I don't understand how all of this works, but Jesus did. And I'm convinced that the Pharisees in Jesus' day understood perhaps better than we do today. When Jesus engaged them in conversation, when they were uh, sort of clanging swords in battle, Jesus said, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know God? Know the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know the mind of God? Know the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. You you want to know the activity, the will, the design of God? Look in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. I had a friend who was preaching a chapel service for a Christian school, and he uh, talked about the divinity of Jesus, saying at one point in his message, Jesus is God. And there were a number of phone calls that came in for the remainder of the day. People wanted to know, what is this strange doctrine that's being, that's being taught? But ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is God. He, he is. He is Lord of all the universe. He, he is what, if you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. And verse 15 goes on to say, he's the firstborn over all creation. There are certain cults, Jehovah's Witnesses to be specific, that take this verse to be the suggestion that Jesus is somehow born into existence at some point, that he at some point in time in history did not exist. But to believe that ignores the entire context of Colossians 1, where the Bible says he is the beginning, he is before all things, indeed he is the image of the invisible God. The idea of being firstborn here is not about chronology, it's about importance. In other words, Paul is alluding to what he says emphatically in verse 18, that all of this happens in order that Jesus might have first place in everything, in order that he might have the preeminence. In other words, there has never been a person of greater significance than the person of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think the world misunderstands the nature of our Christmas celebrations, It is not as though we are celebrating the birth of Jesus as in the beginning of Jesus. 
No, as we sing, mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All, thing was, all things were created through him and by him for his delight and for his glory. He always was, and he always will be the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Firstborn over all creation. In verse 16, there's a continuation of this theme. For everything was created by him. He made everything. Jesus hung the earth on its axis, flung the stars in the sky, the two great lights in their courses, sun and moon, for light by day and light by night. He made us even as we are. From the biggest of us to the smallest of us, every molecule of creation, every atomic particle, there is not one square inch over all creation from the highest heights to the deepest depths over which Jesus Christ cannot say, mine. He made it all and he owns it. This is who our Savior is. There's this list of Things that Jesus created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, all things created through him. It's, there's really no need to work through what those might speak to. It is sufficient to say that Jesus made everything. everything. In verse 17, the Bible says he is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. That is... Jesus is sustainer of all things. It is not that he spun, spun the universe into existence and left it in operation on its own. There are certain natural laws that God seems to have implemented in the creation around us. This verse tells us that Jesus is actively involved in sustaining the world around us. He is holding us together at this very moment. The militant atheist that shakes his fist in the face of God and denies his creative power, his lordship over creation, even as he spews his blasphemy, it is the patient, merciful hand of Jesus that holds his very existence together. He is the sustainer of all things. Verse 18 says, he is also the head of the body, the church. We speak affectionately about our church, my church, Brother Wade's church, various groups of the church, church. It's appropriate that we speak that way. That's not altogether bad, but it can be misleading. Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, this is not my church. It is not your church. It doesn't belong to any constituent group within the church. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Every decision, every step we take, every move we make ought to be a reflection of the mind of God in heaven for his church here on earth. He is the head of the church. Jesus owns it, which is why in spite of our bumps and warts, it's still the best thing going. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything or preeminence. Again here, the idea of being firstborn is not about chronology or order. 
There were others who were resurrected from the dead. Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, although Lazarus was not raised vicariously. In other words, he was not raised on our behalf. We read John 11 and we celebrate what Jesus did there, but you have to wonder what was going on in the mind of Lazarus. If I've left this world for four days, let me alone. <laughs> Jesus raises him up and he calls him forth. Elijah raised the dead. Elisha raised the dead. We've seen that miracle worked by the power of God before, but none raised in the manner of our Savior Jesus. We, we understand, you understand, don't you, that Jesus died in our place? In the same manner, he was raised in our place. Romans 6 says, by faith in Jesus, we are joined together. This is a critically important part of the gospel. We are joined together with Jesus. That is, that spiritually speaking, we are in Christ as he gives his life's blood on the cross. In the same way, we are in Christ. In, in that mysterious moment when the stone is rolled away, when Jesus conquers death, hell, and the grave, and walks whole from the garden tomb. So much so that Paul says, we have been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. And Paul says, all of this has happened in order that Christ might have first place in our life, that he might have the preeminence. The idea of Jesus as a priority in our life is not completely fitting with what is described in our text. I want you to know that Jesus doesn't just want to be one among your priorities, even if that means being the first among your priorities. Jesus desires to be the whole of our heart's affection. Our world is to revolve around Jesus. Our life is in orbit around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not that we're listing out our priorities and Jesus finds his place somewhere in the list. It is that Jesus is the paper upon which we list our priorities. Everything that we do is intended to draw attention, affection, worship, and glory to the person and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that in all things he might have preeminence. Verse 19 may be the most mysterious verse in all of the Bible. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Y'all tracking with me? The fullness of God dwelt bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. God is omnipresent, isn't he? That means that God is everywhere. You, you cannot go somewhere to escape the presence of God. And yet the fullness of God's character is brought to bear in the body of Jesus Christ. All of the grace that we know through the Father is brought to bear in the person of Jesus. All of the mercy, all of the love, all of the justice of God dwelt bodily in the person of Jesus. All of God dwelt bodily in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a remarkable thing to think about. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Verse 20 says, through him to reconcile everything to himself. Jesus is the reconciler of all things. Things in heaven, things on earth, Jesus is the mediator of reconciliation. We are an unholy people. 
you are an unholy person. Even the creation around us is marked by the curse of Adam's sin. Romans 8 says the creation groans for the day of its own redemption and reconciliation. Everything we know, everything we experience, everything we touch has been itself touched by the curse of sin. And yet there is a holy God in heaven who has looked upon us and said, I love you. Now, what is a holy God to do to bridge the gap between his righteous self and an unrighteous people who've become the object of his affection? Again, he doesn't overlook our sins as though they were insignificant. Rather, he would send his son that his life's blood would be shed, that the bridge would be gapped. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Jesus reconciles all things to himself. The remainder of verse 20 explains that Jesus has made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is the peacemaker. Aren't you glad that in a day of, of such angst and turmoil, when everyone seems to be mad about something, that Jesus is the peacemaker? Th that he promises to do that for us. And, and listen, if you're living in the absence of peace in your life, it's, it's, it's not because you're walking in the Spirit. It's, it's not that Jesus has called you uniquely to the ministry of absolute 100% discernment, and your job is to go around knocking in the head all the people who don't get every jot until right. It's that you're not walking in the Spirit because Jesus promises peace. He has made peace for us. Jesus is our peacemaker, and he's, he's made peace through the blood of, of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. When, when I was first called to ministry, I, I don't know if this was ever a real thing or not. It seemed more like uh, sort of a, a foal that was easy to preach against, but I would hear the old preachers talk about how there was an effort at taking uh, the theme of the blood out of the gospel in certain songs. I know that's happened a little bit, but I'm, I was never sure that it happened on the level that everyone talked about. But one thing is for certain. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is the blood of Christ that makes us whole again. The shedding of innocent, righteous blood is the source of our salvation. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's done for us. And you need to know that. And that must be tucked away in your heart forever. And the truths that we've celebrated, that Paul has outlined for us in verses 13 through 20, must be recited in your gospel conversations with those that you interact with. If there's to be any hope of them trusting in Christ, they must first know who Christ is. We, we sometimes approach our evangelistic efforts in the wrong way. I, was, I can remember being coached early on. What you, you, you approach them and you ask them, if you died today, where would you spend eternity? That, that is the absolute worst way to start a gospel conversation. <laughs> because, because where we live, they're all going to say, well, I'm going to heaven. Now, they don't know any, understand any basis for that. But that's the remark that they'll offer you. And I'm telling you, we've got to take them further back than that. 
Lost people don't see clearly their own lostness. Most people are astonished to learn that they are alienated from God, that apart from the blood of Jesus, there can be no restoration of their soul. We begin with who Christ is. Now, I can attest to personally that it is entirely possible to live in the Bible Belt in the context of Christian culture and Christian churches and Christian people without ever hearing the gospel. I was almost 20 years old before I ever can remember hearing plainly the gospel. Now, I'm sure I had, I had a godly grandmother that provided a Christian example, and I'm sure there were times when I simply didn't have ears to hear that the gospel was explained or talked about, but nearly 20 years old before the gospel ever settled into my ears. And there are people in your family, in your neighborhood, at your school, in your workplace, whom you've assumed to know full well the promise of the gospel, who have no idea whatsoever about what Jesus has done for us. It was some time ago, and some of the details escape me now, but there was an article written in Christianity Today about a church plan in New York City. And the church planner was recounting a Sunday morning experience. He was especially enthusiastic about the way the service had gone that day. There was a guest in the back, which was kind of a rare thing for them at the time. And, and at the end of the service, the planner and the guest were in the back, and they were conversing about the sermon and just having a great time. The church planner feeling really good about how this went. And in the, in the back of the sanctuary was a baptistry, and behind the baptistry was a cross, a painted cross with Jesus hanging on the cross. And as that morning's guest turned to leave the church for the day, they were breaking off their conversation, he says to the planner, oh, by the way, who's the guy on the plus side? Y'all with me? Now, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you that that level of ignorance about the gospel, whether we believe it or not, whether we like to admit it or not, exists even in the shadow of Longview Point Baptist Church. We need to make crystal clear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it calls for from every man, woman, boy, and girl. Paul doesn't end there. In verse 21, he says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Here Paul describes in just a few words who you are apart from Christ. He says you are alienated, you are hostile in your minds, and you are evil in your actions. We refer to people as uh, good folks, good people, good guy, good gal. But the reality is apart from Christ, you are a hell-bound hater of God, wicked in your thoughts, evil in your actions, and alienated from the one true and living God. The only person who can change your status is Jesus. Paul says that's who you used to be. Apart from the gospel, that's who you were. But he goes on to say, let me tell you who you are now by the blood of Christ, by faith in Jesus. This is who you are. You are holy you are faultless, and you are blameless. 
In other words, your standing with God has been radically changed because of what Jesus has done for you. Holy and faultless and blameless. There will come a day when every person who has been bought by the blood of Jesus will stand before the judgment bar of God. And judgment will be rendered. And as God looks upon those who have fixed their faith on Jesus, what he promises to see is not our deeds and misdeeds, but the blood of his Son. The Bible says that the one who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Peter said the just one was given over in the place of the unjust in order that he might bring us to the Father. There's not a soul here this morning who has a right to heaven apart from the work of Jesus Christ. But there's a clarion gospel call. Peter said, as we looked at last week, the promise is to you, to your children, to those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He invited them to repent and believe in the gospel for the forgiveness of their sin. He said, come, come, come. Won't you this morning, won't you, won't you, won't you come to Christ? Won't you believe in his name for the forgiveness of your sin? Apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin.